Hello, David Oakes here again for the third and final part of our Castle Howard special. If you've not heard my lakeside tour with Mr Nick Howard himself, or my walk through Raywood with the head of forestry, Nick Cook, then head back a couple of episodes and check those out. If, however, you'd like to hear all about roses and brassicas and the tenacity needed to run the gardens and estates of a massive country house, then you're in exactly the right place. This is Trees A Crowd and this is Alistair Gunn. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Do you get to live somewhere local? Do you get, they put you up here? Yeah, I do. I live in Kennesaw, which is just the other side of the okay. lake. So it's, On the estate then? Yeah, it is. Yeah, the estate is under 9,000 acres, but um, the designed part is, was 1,000 acres, and some of that's farmland now. Okay. But uh, the park would have been a thousand acres. So, what's your official uh, job title? I am the head of gardens and landscape. Okay. <laughs> and your name is? Sorry, uh, my, that one. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Alistair Gunn. So, Great. And I've been here. Was it two and a half? Just over two and a half years now. Okay. So. And we've just come into the rose garden. Yes. Yeah. Or one it, of the rose gardens. It, it's yeah. It gets called the rose garden. Um, it was a productive garden for most of its existence. In the 70s, on um, George Howard's wife, Lady Cecilia, died. And um, George Howard at that time was making a decision to open to the public. And uh, so he had a series of rose gardens designed by his friend, uh, very prominent horticulturist, Jim Russell, who lived in the dairies just um, down by the lake. Um, He had been made homeless when his nursery was sold. And... um, uh, George Howard, uh, who was a school friend of his, was kind enough to put him up. Um, and then between the two of them, for the next what, 30 years or so, um, they um, developed the landscape when funds and time allowed. Okay. So then we had Rose Garden. So all these sort of ornamental formal gardens are really quite recent. There's, I mean, there's a nice crossover. There's, I mean... That's obviously edible over there. That's some mm. kind of... Is that beetroot? Uh, that's chard. Chard, sorry. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There's my yeah. gardening one, blown out of the water in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah, I mean the, these were all rose gardens, and then I think uh, there was sort of a sense that uh, the roses were struggling, and they then decided to introduce a sort of a potager, which was in another sort of subsection, and then we brought it in here this year, partly just because we wanted to change things, but also partly because there'd been a sort of a build-up of problems in the soil. So if you grow brassicas, okay. it puts stuff yeah. back in. Yeah. Is that nitrogen it's putting back in the soil? Uh, or? No, it's what it is, it's, and it's a problem with a lot of plants, especially roses, actually. But when you've um, grown the same thing in the soil repeatedly, you'll get a build-up of microorganisms, which will then sort of attack younger versions of that plant going back in, okay. or will be too much for the plant to cope with. Um, and then you get a build-up, of course, of, of pathogens, of pests and diseases that... Uh, particularly like that plant, okay. and they're just waiting for next year, really. <laughs> so when I... Um when I, so I, I'm, I'm working up here at the moment. When I first came up, there was an amazing white rose, ah. which I think I got in... Is, is that... It is right there. That's the one, yeah. That's, that's the Devonian... Devoniensis, we think, yes. We uh, think? We think, well, I, I, that's the closest we come to. And it, it's from the original list. So that rose was put in about 40 years ago. Um, and this border here, this was, is called the China border. 
and it's um, it was it's a south-facing wall and therefore they thought they could get away with growing these very sort of tender rare roses and to be honest it's been cleared out a few times but there are a few survivors and that's one of that's them. one of them it's incredible it is it's yeah. one of the most sort of richly florid roses i've ever smelled without sort of being that sort of saccharine kind of yeah. artificial smell it's just it's it's floral and earthy in the mm. equal measure it's gorgeous yeah this this so the the china border is so cool because there were chinas and teas which are sort of subsections of roses uh, okay. um, and they are really the sort of the romantic ideal of a rose you know they've got the fragrance they've got the sort of uh, kind of the mutable colors and they've got this sort of elegance to them, sort of intrinsic elegance uh, they tend here to not bloom as well in britain um, they like hotter climates it was doing pretty well when i was here yeah and that's why we're trying to try to encourage it so sure. it's nice to have such a fantastic specimen here and doing well a rose is something that you are particularly intrigued by. I mean, it's certainly one of the agendas that is pushed in the garden centre. Yeah, yes, they. Um, I think this was originally a very academic collection of roses, and you had you had the China border for the Chinas and Teas, you had the old rose garden, you had the hybrid perpetual garden, and you had uh, the hybrid tea garden. This is where the hybrid tea garden was, and it's now uh, sort of annuals. This, the vegetable garden was in here last year. Okay. Um, so they've tried to sort of capitalise on that. Um, obviously, the number of roses in the garden's been reduced, uh, and people want to see colour all year, and roses, most roses can't do that. Yeah. This, I remember coming here, when I first came here, the, the, the apple blossom in those trees was just out. Oh, and the colours hadn't come through. And I came mm. back about, I don't know, two weeks ago to do a bit of research. Seeing this wonderful contrast of the purples and the blues and the whites was just stunning. And even, even in the two weeks I've been away, it's, it's all just sort of sprouted up again. The amount of rain that we've had, yeah. uh, the, the dodgy <laughs> autumn that we've had has sort of made it sort of beautifully, not overgrown, but lush and verdant. Mm. Yeah, we... Um I do like these sort of this is these are all annuals really and um, you know it's really nice to have annual borders not many people like growing them because they're they are work but they do offer a kind of length of color that you just don't get from perennials you know perennials have their season but an annual mm. will go on all summer so long as you do get enough warmth because sure. they're all from you know warmer parts of the world really most of these plants so what's your background where you're from and why are you a gardener <laughs> uh, I'm I, I'm from Hertfordshire um, my last job was um, in Hertfordshire I was working uh, there at a, another sort of uh, old house um, Hatfield house and, oh, I know Hatfield uh, yeah it's a lovely they do a wonderful folk festival there uh, they do they do yes and uh, they filmed the madness of king george there as well they did and apparently the favorite although that took place after i'd left which i rather regret but uh, i quite like to have seen that being shot uh and pride and prejudice and zombies as well amusingly <laughs> which was filmed when i was there um is that something you want to admit to <laughs> well it, it was fun to watch anyway <laughs> watch it being filmed mm -hmm. um so uh, yeah, I'm from Hertfordshire. I did study art for a little bit and then I realised I wasn't going to make a career out of it um, and I'd always loved uh, being in the garden since a small child. And um, so, What was it about your childhood that made you interested in being outside? I, d I don't really know because, you know, there were no sort of very strong uh, parental uh, guidance uh, pushing me in that direction. Um, so I just, I liked plants and creepy crawlies basically, so uh, why not make a career out of it, <laughs> I guess. Do you actively try and plant stuff that's going to bring in a butterfly population, bring in a... Yeah, I mean, we've got lots of it here. This purple uh, flower of a bean of Beneriensis, 
um, is a bit of a butterfly magnet when it's a bit warmer. Mm-hmm. Anything that flowers, or most things that flower for a long period of time, are going to be good for pollinators, and also the public like looking at them. So, sure, um, these are sort of filling in the gaps where roses have died off. Okay, um, whilst we sort of have a think about what we're going to do here next. So, I mean. It's busy here. There's always tourists roaming around. Do you yeah. just come in at night and sort of stick them in when no one's looking? Or? Uh, no, no, we do. Um, yeah, we, there's, there's a team of us, um, not a very big team considering the territory. There's about seven of us full time and we've got one part time. We've got a few volunteers who are great. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a big area and um, we do the gardens and then we, you know, do other things like supporting Christmas events or well, the event season as well. Sure. So, um, but this is what we're most interested in, obviously, in here. Um, and we're trying to improve it. So you can see these terrible looking things over there are honeysuckles that have apparently never done well. So we're going to get rid of those and we're probably going to continue the white rose pergola around the corner. Okay. Yeah, so we're always looking for ways to improve it. Do you have an end goal? Like, I mean, you've been here only a couple of years now, I guess. So what was it about taking this on? It's obviously, I can't imagine it's just, I want to maintain it. It's like, what's the... Yeah, I think, I mean, gardens do get tired. And I think there'd been uh, some, I don't know, short staffing or something for a while here. So things did look very tired when I arrived. So... It, there was a degree of renovation that we okay. sort of engaged in. Is yeah. that on your CV? Are you known as the person who can come <laughs> in and zhuzh things up again? Well, it's, it is fun, uh, so long as you, you know, you've got to have the resources and the time. And it's a different part of the country, it's a different soil. Um, the weather has been quite odd the last few years, actually. You know, uh-huh. Streams of hot and dry and wet other years. How does um, a gardener cope with that? Because it's all about forward planning, about getting everything in the ground at the right time, Mm -hmm. knowing what's going to bloom when, and if it's unpredictable, if it's um, if you don't know what's going to happen, how do you how do you manage that? Mm. Uh, Well, I think you know good cultivation helps. So if your soil is in good state, you can cope with those dry periods better um, because the, the soil will have a healthy sort of microbial population. Uh, it'll have a good structure so it'll hold water better and Uh it'll also drain better in very wet conditions so good cultivation is important and then you've got to be a bit careful with your plant choices Um, you've got to really I suppose concentrate on the things that can cope and then uh, either minimise or sort of get by with just a few things that can't sure Um, weather's a, a big deal I mean we've got a whole range of new pests and diseases unfortunately being introduced um, quite soon. There's a lot of um, pests and diseases coming in through global trade. Um, It's the same story many places in the world. Um, But as so much is moving around, we're also moving around pests and diseases at a rate of knots as well. So Um, do you have a nursery here growing stuff and getting native species distributed around the country safely or um we have a tree nursery um which uh, nick cook runs um and they grow very nice trees it's not a big nursery um we don't on the kind of ornamental side uh, the garden center here runs like uh, most others and um buys most things in Ooh, and right on cue there's uh, there's some hedge maintenance being done um Let's go and find somewhere a little further away from that and continue talking. 
Do you have um, a favourite plant? I mean, simple question, but is there is there something that is dear to your heart? Um, well, I am fond of the roses, so this is was a good fit. My last place of work, there were a lot of roses, and then here there's this sort of uh, huge collection of them. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, when you're a gardener, you learn to love all things, well, many things, um, and hate a few as well. Um, but but if you had to, if I had to nail you down. Oof. It used to be tree peonies. Um, used to be? What happened? Uh, uh, well, you sort of grow to love what you've got to grow, if you like. Okay. Um, so I suppose I'm kind of more fascinated by roses. Roses are very, very interesting in rather the same way that tree peonies are because they've been cultivated for a huge period of time. Um, and you've got this sort of wonderful intersection of kind of uh, human culture and uh, garden, well, the natural world so um, you've got the wild rose but then you've got these extraordinary things that have been created over probably a few thousand years and mm. the Chinese have been cultivating roses for a very long time and um, without those Chinese roses would never have the modern reblooming rose sure so I think that's particularly fascinating it's the horticultural aspect it's nature with the the input of human have you ever tried to develop your own roses um no no it's it's a roses are really uh you know they take a real specialist breeder um you know david austin who releases it i think what five or six varieties a year has something you know hundreds of thousands of seedlings on the go so no you always kind of hope that one might show up accidentally you know by seed or something um that you forget to weed out one day and it turns out to be wonderful but uh, the likelihood of that happening is uh, very remote <laughs> i've always i've had a, a bit of a fascination lately with dog roses and just seeing uh-huh. wild roses pop out of hedgerows mm-hmm. everywhere um and just knowing that or being reminded that flowers serve uh, a purpose that they're not just ornamental and that yeah they, they still exist everywhere you see and i think in general wildflowers at the moment are sort of piquing people's interest in a way mm. that they hadn't done for quite some time and whether that's because of rewilding enterprises or other things elsewhere, I don't know. Um, well, it's, it is really, really gratifying because um, one thing you... Uh, well, I've been made aware of very much at Castle Howard. Um, I'd started to notice it uh, in Hertfordshire. I grew up there and then I'd left and returned to work. But the disappearance in, you know, birds, I suppose, mostly, over just my lifetime you know flowers are really important for insects and insects are sort of uh, quite low down on the food chain and, and very important so it's nice that people are thinking about it because we do need to let things flower um, in the hedgerows and on the verges um, otherwise we're going to be in some significant trouble did you see what they're doing in Rotherham now which is letting all the verges of the motorways and the roads sort of just sort of keep growing wild really just take they cut them back once a year but otherwise mm. they just let them do whatever they're going to do yeah I know I've not seen it. I'd love to um, and I think Sheffield um, they do something uh, more ornamental but this it is it's wonderful that people are allowing or allowing wildflowers back in because we've so denuded the country of them uh, over the last 30 or 40 years do you get to do anything about it here we do i mean the howards fortunately have are quite uh, environmentally concerned so we have what's called unimproved grassland in places um, improved means unimproved means it hasn't been sprayed that much because mm-hmm. of course farmers are constantly trying to spray out um plants they feel are useless and then of course you've got the whole kind of tidiness aesthetic as well so here we have old turf which does have some wonderful things still in it um, and the Howards are keen to encourage that so we are 
over sort of the east side of the property um, within the paid area we're going to try and encourage more wildflowers and sort of mow later um, try and introduce um, uh, hemiparasites like yellow rattle which sort of sap the vigour from grass and um, therefore allow other things to prosper. So that's, that's one of the really nice things about Castle Howard is that there is still that um, sort of heritage which has been removed in so many other parts of the country um, and we can, we can sort of encourage and work with it. What, do you have any um, ideal things you'd like to do in the future? If you were to get your, your perfect job... <laughs> Present job accepted, obviously. Yeah. Well, I'd like a fantastic greenhouse where I could grow those, um, some of those really interesting roses from China that require greater heat. Uh, I'd like to have a, a tree peony terrace, uh, which you'd just go to when they're in bloom, uh, as the sort of Japanese and Chinese do. And uh, I don't know, it's nice to have a bit of everything, I suppose. Do you have a garden at the moment? Uh, I have a wilderness at the moment. <laughs> so uh, I had made some uh, progress with it, but it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's still a wilderness, I'm afraid. So. You don't have any time, I guess, you're always here. Yeah, yeah. It's a hell of a view, isn't it? It is, it is. I tell you, the best, the best times are sort of the mornings and the evenings in particular. Um, but also the top of our yard, which is not a view that people ever get to see very much. You get to see the mausoleum and the pyramid and a little bit of the bastion wall and just sort of the rolling landscape. And um, it's just incredible, really. And it's unusual landscape for this style of, or this, you know, for one of the stately homes, sure. because they didn't try and completely manage everything. It was, the site was picked, we assume, because the third L came here and, and recognised some sort of intrinsic beauty in the place sure. itself. Um, and it's been, of course, enhanced, but... Yeah. Can I grab a picture of you yeah. here quickly, with the four in the background, would be a nice one. Um, I'd say this would have been a Victorian... Um, Parterre originally. Yeah, I, I had a big chat with um, Terry Goff, who's the head gardens at Hampton Court Palace. Right, okay. And so he sort of took me through the history of parterres and everything there, because mm. it's basically all parterre gardens mm, there. Mm. Um, was it true that story about Queen Anne not liking the box or something like that? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a fan. Like, he, he, I think he knew more about history than he knew about gardens really? in a kind of a way. <laughs> but like yourself, like, he was fascinated by the human interactions with yeah. it and how. It was the people that had shaped the history of gardens and flowers in particular and yeah. how that sort of moved everything forward. It is, but, and we're now in this completely different era when gardening is actually seems to be... People aren't so keen on contact with nature and are less sort of impressed by... You know, you can imagine the old days, you had sort of uh, high-end roses and peonies being bred for the aristocracy. Um, and then at the other end of things, you had um, the little auricular prim, uh, primula mm-hmm. that uh, was being bred by sort of weavers. And then they'd travel to compete in shows and win a copper kettle and all that sort of thing. Sure. So it, it, that's all amazing. But it's the first, one of the first times sort of I think in history for a long time that we've actually turning our interest more to what would just grow wild um, and without... Why do you think that is? I'm sure it's a complex thing. I, you know, there's the great concern over losing things because it's really the, only the 20th century that we had this ability to devastate populations um, without really thinking about it. But uh, maybe it's also a nostalgia for something that we're further removed from as well. It, I think it's a terrible pity if people aren't interested, and I guess a lot of people aren't, but, you know... Uh, when there's computer games or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, th- there's um, a computer game that I've played called Red Dead Redemption 2, um, which is the only one I allow myself, mostly because of the horse riding aspect of it. Anyway, yeah. But you can go around and you can pick wildflowers and mm. herbs and spices, and they've 
for whatever reason, they've decided to put a horticultural, botanical and uh, animal interest. And there's a natural history element of the entire process. Mm. So, I I mean, perhaps it's just one guy who runs the company that makes it, or perhaps they've realised that the video gaming youth of today appreciate and desire a certain amount of attachment to the natural world mm. which they they don't get from that world normally yeah and you do i mean there's a sense in the press that people are very interested or more interested or the interest is is there i mean i remember in the 90s when well when i was a teenager and there was this sort of interest in um you know saving newts and toads and that was something that concerned me greatly then and um now of course with the internet you get to understand hear these things much much faster and you have all this information at your fingertips so it's nice to see that people are concerned about doing something and it's important to do something on your own doorstep as well you know it's um, not just sort of climate change in far-off places um, there's things you can do at home too I mean you can see from here actually just you see there's some twiggy masses in the line of trees that first line of trees yeah. there that's all ash that's ash dieback oh, okay. um, and it's if you look round I mean over there it's actually just squirrel gray squirrel damage um but uh, that's all ash dieback and if you look over the water just around the corner there there's some big ash trees on the bank and they're all dying back too and it's it's really you know it's happening we lost the elm in the 70s the ash is heading in the same direction there's all sorts of tree diseases being brought in um you know monthly pretty much um so it's really good that people are paying attention um and that that way hopefully something will something will happen is it something that has always happened or is it just something that we've exacerbated as a result of bringing in new species yeah it is something that's always happened i mean you know you but it's it's just been sped up i mean you know we were talking about japanese knotweed and that's an ornamental that was brought in mm-hmm. because it was considered to be interesting and beautiful it's and now it's quite tasty as well is it yeah they say mm. it's a bit like rhubarb you have to sort of and get rid of the fibrousness out of it, but it's apparently quite tasty. Maybe you could get rhubarb forcing pots and put it over in spring and then, you know, cut it off. And <laughs> I'll tell my mortgage crumble. advisor that no, it's, I'm just, it's just there for food. I'm going to make a really nice Japanese knotweed crumble. I, I think that could be something to pioneer, couldn't it? You know? and then we could Every Japanese... blessing a curse. Yeah, that. absolutely. Uh, knotweed gin would be fantastic, maybe. Oh, or... <laughs> there's, there's some ex-banker in London who's got their sort of knotweed-enthused gin distillery going on. <laughs> I, I would like to taste that, you know, I'd buy a bottle. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, stuff's been brought in, um, but our ability to bring it in is much, much more sophisticated now. Um, and we're doing it much more than, we, than perhaps we need to. That's uh, one of your JCBs coming yeah. up behind us. Yeah, bucolic, bucolic sounds of the JCB. I am. Um, I was at the Eden Project doing an interview um, with uh, one of the founders of the building, there, founders of the enterprise down there, um, Joe. And she was brilliant. But I was there before it opened, mm-hmm. so it was literally just people with power drills, like right. like, <laughs> like huge like four by fours going around everywhere. And of course, as soon as it opened, as soon as ten o'clock hit, and they mm-hmm. let the guests in, it was beautiful idyllic bucolic heaven um but the, the amount of work that goes into maintaining somewhere like this yeah. or the Eden project or hampton court is just it's an army basically yeah it is and we've got technology on our side now so that makes it makes it easier um in the early 1900s the garden department was 88 people and uh i think it was the ninth countess who cut it to 44 but that's still pretty impressive <laughs> so um 
Yeah, I mean, and they would have used sheep for mowing, I suppose. Um, we use lawn mowers. Not tempted to bring back some, some grazing animals? Uh, yes, I think we would all like to. Um, I think there'd need to be a little bit more kind of uh, shepherding expertise because, yeah, I just don't know enough about sheep, I think. But yeah, over, over sort of by the lakes, it would be really nice. I mean, I've seen very old photographs of sheep over there, but we'd love to have some. Uh, we've got some sort of feral peacocks, but uh, that's about it at the moment. That's good, <laughs> What you need to do is to train up the tourists to sort of have a little nibble yeah. of the grass. <laughs> or even get those giant rabbits, you know, if you could just sort of keep them um, corralled together. That would be grass. gloriously eccentric. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? So, where to begin? Thank you massively to Nick, Nick and Alistair for taking time out of their very busy schedules to give me a thorough tour of all that makes Castle Howard so spectacular. If you want to know more about Castle Howard, then head to castlehoward.co.uk. It is brimming with all the history of the state, the history of the gardens, and much more besides. And as soon as we're through this nationwide lockdown, I'm sure their gates and gardens will spring right open to you for you to explore. Thank you too to Abigail and to Sophie for making this possible at the Castle Howard end, and as always, thank you to Ollie for editing my conversational skills into something resembling cohesion. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed these episodes. They really are a labour of love on my part, so it's always good to make sure that people are enjoying them. Otherwise, I can just stop and we'll pretend it never happened. We've another very exciting bonus episode coming up next week, featuring interviews with a horde of past and future guests of Trees of Crowd. So be sure to check back here on the 21st of April for World curlew day but until then have a very happy weekend keep well wash your hands and i hope to see you all back here very soon bye bye oh the oak and the ivy oh the oak and the ivy oh